despite reflection. As an admirer of his art, I had for over a decade read and catalogued scores of articles and interviews in which there occurred alarmingly contradictory statements about his life and major gaps to be filled. And so I proceeded. I learned at once that Alfred Hitchcock was a notoriously poor correspondent and that almost no personal letters survive. Nor did he keep diaries or journals or notebooks, a fact that reflects his deep inarticulateness. This lack of written primary sources at first seemed a crippling omission. But as the facts emerged, it became clear that Hitchcock's films were indeed his notebooks and journals, and that his almost maniacal secrecy was a deliberate means of deflecting attention away from what those films really are, astonishingly personal documents. As my work continued, first in England, where he spent half his life, and then in America, I turned to public records, county and family registries, school archives and studio files, as well as to those who knew him professionally and socially, to artists and writers and actors who worked with him. With the exception of a small number of people and one major studio, people felt freer after his death to summon memories, to contribute clues that led me further. Gradually, a complex image appeared, more mysterious than any of the stories he chose to film. Chapter 1, March 1979 Reporters and photographers, movie fans and autograph seekers and guests at the Beverly Hilton Hotel clustered in the lobby all afternoon and by 5.30 on March 7, 1979, the desk clerks and bellmen were finding routine duties almost impossible. The hotel, at the intersection of Wilshire and Santa Monica Boulevards in Beverly Hills, California, was fully booked, and all day there was an increasingly clear feeling that an important event was about to occur and to be recorded for posterity. Throughout the afternoon, ten-foot stands supporting lights of enormous wattage were strategically placed from the front door of the hotel all the way to the entrance to the grand ballroom. Miles of thick black cables linked generators to cameras, to lights, to control consoles. Taping and editing machines and microphones were uncrated and tested. Technical directors supervised carpenters and electricians. Young men and women from the television studio were directing traffic indoors and out, and members of the dinner committee were making last-minute adjustments to the seating arrangement. Fifteen hundred people were to attend the formalities that evening, and millions more, thanks to technology, were to watch a taped and edited version on television within the week. Inside the ballroom, 150 tables were set for a four-course dinner, and a stage had been constructed with a speaker's podium and with great looming photos of film stars in a variety of dramatic situations and settings. At six o'clock, as if on cue, the first limousines drew up to the entrance of the hotel, and the curious onlookers, restrained by blue-coated guards and velvet ropes, strained to watch the parade of those who arrived for a $300-a-plate dinner. Like footmen at a royal banquet, several youngsters in the crowd called out the names of arriving guests. This was not entirely inappropriate, since a Hollywood gala has for a long time been the closest American parallel to the appearance of crowned heads. It's James Stewart, Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant. 
and Charlton Heston, Jane Wyman, Olivia de Havilland, Barbara Streisand, Michael Caine, Mel Brooks, Walter Matthau, Diana Ross, Christopher Reeve. The list comprised the venerable senior citizens of Hollywood and the newest faces of popular television series. On that warm, dry evening, the American Film Institute was going to present its seventh Life Achievement Award. Everyone awaited the arrival of the honored recipient, but, as usual, he sabotaged their expectations. He had been quietly escorted to the hotel much earlier in the day and had been settled in a seventh-floor suite. The staff for the event was acutely anxious, for although they had announced Alfred Hitchcock as their choice in the autumn of 1978, he had for months refused to cooperate in the press arrangements and interviews and had declined to help with the complex preparations involved in selecting film clips and sending special invitations to colleagues and actors. He had also refused to divulge his preferences about how to handle many crucial details.